Hello? Hello? Hello! <laughs> that was weird. I, uh, apparently, um, to, to answer the phone, um, you're supposed to click uh, the green one and not the red one. Oh, it, that, that would do it. I, I clicked the red button and I looked over at call recorder and it's like, huh, that's weird. It's not, uh, it's not lighting up like it usually does. Maybe because I hung up the phone. Well, that's, that's pretty weird. Um, I need to, um, I think that might make me sound better. Did I sound really bad before? No, you're fine. Oh, weird. Okay. I, uh, you're loud. There we go. Not that, not that I think that you were too loud. You were just loud. <laughs> People say that about me. Well, it's... they also complain about my punctuation. Well, just one, one <laughs> punctuation. You're, you're one, oh... one person or one punctuation? Both. But one person apparently I don't use enough semicolons. Right, right. One person complains about one of your punctuation marks, and that's and fine. So and so many other things I do wrong. I'll send you the message. Ah. <laughs> hey, he's uh, he likes to edit. That's what he told me yesterday. I, he he critiqued yeah, one of yeah. my tweets yesterday, <laughs> and I said, "Oh, I suck." And he goes, "No, you just need an editor." Yeah. It, well, and you know, and he's told me before as kind of a, like a there there. It's like everyone needs an editor, exactly. you know. So anyway, that's, that was the exact situation I had yesterday. Was a there there in a tweet. <laughs> You know, sometimes when you're ripping those off, uh, you forget things, um, and it makes you it makes you feel dumb, though, right? Like you should know that, and it should always be the right thing. Oh, well, like like the oh, like the difference between there and there and there. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're like educated. We have we have advanced degrees, but and we should we should know grammar. But yeah, sometimes in the in the urge to get some fire something off quickly, uh, you forget about that. It, it's true. It's true. So hey. Um, how are things? Things are good. Things are good. I am recording in my luxurious um, university office. Fantastic. Which which has a large cup of of uh, podcast coffee in it. So I see you did you did just text me a picture of um, podcast coffee. Now is that something that you wrote on it, or when you ordered it at Starbucks when they asked for your name, <laughs> you said just put podcast coffee on this. <laughs> yeah, no, sadly, um, sadly, it is not Starbucks. Um, in the background behind the white podcast coffee cup, you might be able to see a blue um, uh, uh, Contigo mug. And uh, that has my Starbucks coffee. But uh, I um, I know this is this is what we affectionately call Dudley's coffee oh. uh, because we have a cafeteria in the food science building called Dudley's because we're on Dudley Road. Um, there is no actual Dudley. As far well, I guess there was a Dudley that got the road name for him, but there is no Dudleys in Dudley's Cafe. There's not a guy who who's in the back. Uh, no, there's a couple of very nice ladies. Um, none, neither of them are named Dudley. <laughs> none of them are named Dudley, right? <laughs> um, and they serve god awful coffee. But um, you know, Ben, I I want to make sure that I have the the appropriate caffeine level in my blood for our listeners, and I'm willing to drink bad coffee to do that. Well, that's good. I I, I think. Based on our last two uh, episodes, we should rename the podcast uh, "Coffee Coffee Talk." Co- <laughs> oh, that's taken. <laughs> Damn. Co- coffee safety talk. Coffee. Now we'll just stick with food safety talk. I think it's best. It's so descriptive. It is. It is. You, it just it's it says what's on the tin. You know. That's right. Exactly. It's like the like the beer store. <laughs> we, what was the other one? Uh, the nail shop. <laughs> the nail shop. Yeah. Where would you go get your nails done? The nail shop. I, I mean, there's clearly nowhere else to uh, to go. Well, especially after I read the reviews, I was ready to fly out to Beverly Hills. I, 
I'm looking forward to. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think I would. Or no, it wasn't it wasn't barely. It was Omaha. Omaha. Yeah, Omaha. I'm confused. I'm confused. Our listeners have no idea what we're talking about. <laughs> no, we should we should link to uh, we should link to some stuff in show notes to try to explain to them. Yeah. Um. Hey, so I want to talk about something that's not food safety for a second. Okay, let's go. Because that's how we always start this, and we haven't talked about music for a while. Um, and I may have mentioned this. I don't. I, I don't remember. When I reviewed uh, 40, episode 47, I don't think I mentioned it, but I might have. Um, I'm currently in the midst of ripping every CD that I have. Um, have I mentioned that? Did I tell no. you? No. Okay. So, so I, over the years, you know, I probably have not. Um, I've not purchased a hard a hard copy CD as 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 one might say. Uh, probably in five years. Um, and so everything, uh, all music that I've acquired in the last five years has all been electronic, but I had this, um, collection of, of about 600 CDs, um, where some I had ripped and I had, you know, before space on hard drives seemed to be unlimited and I would never get to a limit. I would only rip certain songs and not everything. And, um, they've resided in, in my attic for the last four years. And, and Danny, um, said to me recently, what are we doing with these <laughs> with a stern look on her face as we were in the attic? And I said, uh, nothing. She goes, well, we should sell them then or get rid of them because you're never going to use them. And yeah, let me, let me just, let me just translate for those listeners who are not married. When she says, what are we doing with these? Uh-huh. What that means is Ben, you need to do something with these now. <laughs> right. They cannot reside here. The current situation is not acceptable. Not acceptable, right. So so I decided that I would um, go through and figure out which ones I had not ripped and then rip everything um, uh, to my hard drive. So and, and I've been using – I mentioned this in maybe five or six months ago that I've been using iTunes Match for a while. And so now I'm enjoying this, like, library of music that I had forgotten about. And it's mine. It's not like Pandora. It's – I mean, stuff from – 10, 12 years ago that I, that I was really, really into and, and I've, uh, I've rediscovered it. Now, the, what I want to ask you about is one, um, one CD that, that is not from 10 or 12 years ago, but it's from the sixties when I think even, it might even be older than you. Um, and it's the Beach Boys Pet Sounds. Now everyone, I, I went through this phase and, and it was actually, um, uh, linked to a, a class that I took in my undergraduate uh, course on um, the music and popular culture. And we talked a little bit about the Beach Boys and Pet Sounds, and I went and purchased the CD and, and didn't listen to it a whole lot. And I ripped it uh, about a week ago, and I've probably been listening to it nonstop since. So I've discovered, I mean, I knew a couple of the songs on it, um, but I, I, I kind of... Uh, chuffed at the this is a revolutionary album um, everyone uh, from Elvis Costello to Paul McCartney has been influenced by it um, and and then uh, in the last week I've discovered I think why uh, why that is and why it was so different so and it, my, my question I pose to you is did you ever go through a pet sounds phase so that's a that's a very good question. Um, I did not go through a pet sounds phase, and and I just again for those listeners who are keeping up, um, I was five when this came out, so I was not listening to uh, to music, or at least I was not choosing the music I was listening to. Um, I did not go through a pet sounds phase. I did go through a Beach Boys phase, um, and I had probably one one like greatest hits Beach Boys album that has probably uh, it probably 
as Wouldn't It Be Nice, which is from uh, which is from Pet Sounds. Um, and I have heard people talk about Pet Sounds over the years as being this revolutionary thing, and I just never really got it. But I think part, and I don't, I don't know. Again, Elvis Costello and I are probably roughly contemporaries, but um, I, I, you you really, I think you, at least I. I I think you have to really understand what the state of music was in 1966 to understand how revolutionary that was. And I don't necessarily have that perspective. Maybe if I listen to more music and listen to other things that came out alongside it in 1966, I might be able to kind of sense that. I, I, that is, I think, a, um, where I was at a week ago. <laughs> So, interesting. I mean, the, yeah, the way that you, the, what you just because I had recently also just ripped uh, Chuck Berry's greatest hits album, and have been playing that for um, for the boys a bunch because they're really into guitar rock and roll, and there's some really like I don't know crisp sounding just straight up electric guitar sounds which which they're which they love and I love, and and then all of a sudden stumbled across Pat sounds and I was like, man, this is. These albums are roughly, or these songs are roughly contemporary. I mean, it's um, within a couple of years of each other, and and what a um, what a difference there is in the concept. Like, and you know, here we get into like, you know, we're food safety people. I'm talking about music and and melody, but just the way the songs are structured is totally different. So anyway, I've been like totally. jiving on uh on pet sounds and never like like you said i never got it before like i had when i bought it i listened to it once or twice and i was like oh yeah that's great it's layered mm. and then all of a sudden um you know time time and place i guess it, it just hit me as i've been uh, listening to some music uh, uh the last week it's like man this is this really is great yeah i feel like i should go uh, um form a band uh and call it wings or <laughs> Or something. I, I feel. I feel like I'm. Uh, uh, it's influencing me. Yeah, that, that's that's interesting. So um, the and I I would I much more identify with that that Chuck Berry like guitar type stuff. I mean, listen to some of the the stuff that that he put out so early, and it sounds like so far ahead of its time. Um, it's 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 really phenomenal. The uh, the Beach Boys al- album. So I went to the Beach Boys website and I'm looking at all of their albums. And the album that I have, uh, or that I had before I sold all of my uh, sold all of my vinyl, is uh, Endless Summer. Mm, yes, the so. double the double greatest hits album. Right, the, right. Yeah. With with the kind of the weird uh, picture on the front with uh, the waves and the green greenery and the faces staring out. So I remember that album well from my uh from my youth because it is one of the ones that my dad had in his Hmm. um collection of vinyl uh right next to it's weird things as i've been going through all this this music um i have listened to michael jackson thriller and bruce springsteen's born in the usa and those song those albums also with with endless summer are things that that i remember from my you know as I learned how to use a a record player when I was probably five or six, um, that these are these were in my dad's collection of fifty or sixty records. So I've been uh, been reliving some of that stuff and trying to pass at least interesting stuff on to my boys as they uh, dance. And um, well, <laughs> Sam has really been into ninja moves to rock and roll, so he's kind of got a um, mixed martial arts musical um, uh, review going on right now. <laughs> Did you? Uh... 
uh, did you put? Uh, no, maybe it was Bats. Bats posted a video of his kids dancing. That's like that, that. Just that stuff just cracks me up. I could watch that all day long. It's true. I saw that video. I love it. It's uh, I, well, it, yeah. I it's I, I enjoy um, kids with their with no inhibitions. It's like going to a wedding really late. <laughs> yeah, it's the same thing. Yeah. So that. So anyway, pet sounds. That's what I've been. Uh, that's what I've been into lately. Um, oh, you know, speaking of speaking of listening to stuff and, and, you know, I don't I really seldom get and it's maybe it's a phase I'm going through. I seldom get in the mood to listen to music anymore. Mostly, I guess, because if I'm if I'm walking or driving, I'm mostly listening to podcasts, at least until recently. Um, and then if I'm working, sometimes if I'm working, music is OK. And then lately, it just seems like it's it's just too much of a distraction. But what I've been doing lately is just not putting anything in my ears, you know, just, just walking or just driving and not listening to podcasts, um, which was, it's just kind of weird, but it's just like, I just, something flipped inside me and, and I said, I, you know, I need a break. Huh. And, and so are you, do you have your phones on with no, nothing? <laughs> Sometimes I do. That's incredible. <laughs> Sometimes I do because that's my routine, right? Yeah. It's like I put on, um, uh, I, I put, I get my phone, I plug in my headphones, I put my headphones in, and then I start walking, and then I just forget to turn them on. Well, hey, there you go. I do you have noise canceling headphones like that you would use on an airplane or anything like that? I, I, I for years I owned. Actually, still do own fancy noise canceling headphones for use on an airplane. Uh, don't use them too much these days. My go to headphones are a very nice pair of Edemotics, um, which is a, just a, a high end uh, headphone brand. Um, they they fit in my ear really nicely. They ship with about four different types of earbuds that you can put on the on the phones, uh, the headphones, and they're just really super cool. They have a um, a, a thing on the uh, on the cord where you can raise and lower the volume and pause the music, and it's just there. I just can't say enough good things about them. I uh, uh, have. I, I was going through a drawer cleaning out. Well, not really cleaning out, just emptying out a drawer, and uh, I must have over the last. Well, I guess probably ever since I've had an iPhone. Uh, had five or six pairs of these that have either broken or um, I've lost. And then the great, the great news is they come with a really comprehensive warranty. So if, the, if you break them and send them back and they're, they they find them still under warranty, they'll just send you a new pair. So really, I mean, they're they're not cheap, but they're really a nice nice set of headphones. That's cool. I use, if I'm on like a long flight, I actually use the monitor headphones that, that I use, the Sony ones, um, for the podcast. And I just throw oh, those wow. in my bag. I love. I mean, they're they're the most comfortable you know over the ear headphones I've ever had. Um, and I love like the sound so good on them. So I t- so I take that with me, and it has like a ridiculously long cord. I don't know why I would ever need that. Um, but for everyday use, I I use, and I've probably had the same as you. I probably had, I don't know, eight or ten pairs of of just these Sony in earbud. Um, headphones that I get at Target, and they come in different colors, and I love them. Like they fit. I mean, this is the thing with with ear- earphones is they fit my ear. They don't fall mm-hmm. out. They it's comfortable to wear. Um, so I I've got um, one that's kind of beside the bed, and I've got one that ends up in my pocket almost every day because if I happen to be at Starbucks, I like to have headphones. So um, so yeah. So headphone so headphone safety talk is what <laughs> so the, we'll rename this podcast headphone safety talk. Oh, it usually takes us a few minutes to get into it. It does. <laughs> it does. Um, 
so what else? Uh, I haven't been doing much of anything else. Just uh, I've been jumping into uh, social media more. I've been. I don't know if you noticed if you've been stalking me online like I stalk you, but I've, <laughs> but I've been. I, my, I have a new routine of. Um, Doug uh, goes through it at, before he goes to bed, um, sort of everything that's going on overnight, and just sends me a list of URLs, the stuff that we're going to put into the our um, listserv files for um, for Barf Blog, and uh, and I've just been like getting up in the morning early and reading all the stories and picking off little quotes and, and tweeting them, and that's I, I've I have had more fun, and I'm engaging. I, I feel like I'm engaging people or. Uh, online more by doing that in the last couple of uh, weeks or last week or so than I have in, in a whole lot in, in the last couple of months. It's been really cool. I've been connecting with a whole bunch of public health inspectors and environmental health officers who are really, really um, uh, engaged on uh, on Twitter, really, really into it. So that's, that's, that, that's been my big my big new thing. Yeah, and you know, I should because I, I know people are fascinated by this. I should go go over what my uh, kind of social media uh, workflow is, and that is that uh, I start by reading news feeds, which is not just food safety stuff, but it includes you know food safety news and it includes Barf Blog, and then I jump from there. Uh, to Tumblr, which is mostly not food safety stuff, although Bats is on Tumblr. And then from there I go to Facebook, um, and some of that is food safety, but most of it's not. And then uh, I go over to um, app.net, uh, which is a, you know, a, a kind of a Twitter alternative, but it's way, way more than that. Um, and then finally I jump into Twitter, and the problem, my, the problem with Twitter is that I follow – way too many people and i i'm not a I, I can't afford to be a completionist in other words i can't afford to read all of the tweets since the last time i read twitter and it's just kind of become one of those things where it's like i don't go and look at it because it is too there's too much there and then because i don't go and look at it there's too much there and so i probably i don't know i don't i don't know what the solution is i mean on the one hand i could pair back and just have a twitter account that's just for food safety stuff and go and look at that but then I miss out on all the other cool stuff and fun stuff, you know that I that I that that's you know and the enjoyable reason for using Twitter. So yeah, I'm I'm becoming more and more in the moment with Twitter. There, mm-hmm. you so know, you just jump into the stream and yeah, and and I'll go back a little bit, maybe a half hour. Oh, I mean it depends. Overnight, my I guess my biggest Twitter times are first thing in the morning and um, in between eight p.m. and and eleven p.m. And, and I'll go back a little bit, but that's, I mean, yeah, I'm just in the, I'm in the moment and I'll do a couple of searches and see if there's anything that's trending that I think is interesting. Um, but yeah, I'm, I, I agree. I think I follow, I don't know, about a thousand people, maybe 800. Oh, well then you're, you're, you're probably more, more people than I do. You're probably, yeah, you can't, you just can't, can't keep yeah. up with all of that. Yeah. You just can't. Cause there's, and especially, um, there, you know, the, it, uh, it's like a normal distribution that, um, the the top ten percent make up eighty percent of my tweets. Like right, because they're prolific tweeters. Yeah, they're, yeah, yeah. They're they're really good at it, or they do it a lot. <laughs> I think the key to being good is to do it a lot, but you have to do it a lot before you get good. Yeah, that's right. I that's yeah. It's they're one of those things. <laughs> right. Um. But yeah, so I've been I've been doing more of that. I've I've been um I, I feel like that's a uh, as I've kind of 
spent the summer trying to figure out where what I want to do next and wh where I focus my efforts, kind of think that that area is um, different from creating extension fact sheets. Like there's a lot of those out there, so I want to do more. I want to be able to sort of foster this um, this social media food safety world and or not foster, but be part of it and see if I can. Well, no, but do your part to foster it. I, I, yeah. I agree. And, you know, and I think uh, certainly there's there's some advantage to it. And I've been, you know, and occasionally I, you know, I read blogs and follow blogs that talk about how to do social media and, you know, sort of douchey things like that. But, um, you know, when you do your tweets and, you know, optimal retweeting and, and it's, it's, most of it's just a lot of nonsense. But the thing that I've discovered about Twitter is that it's kind of it, – it's got a strong element of randomness to it. So something that you say may set off a really interesting conversation chain and something you may say that you think is the best thing in the world – nobody picks up on and 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 some of that is random some of it probably is the time of day and you know again how you who you built up into your twitter following and and and, and things like that but and yeah and so we had a really interesting discussion uh via twitter the other day um where um i tweeted something and then you replied and then uh chuck haas who listens to the podcast jumped in and it was just it was a good and then, and then some other people yeah. Less well, whatever, uh, duh, and jumped in, and I ignored them. Um, I'm not blocking them, but I'm just not paying attention to them. Um, uh, and and it just was a really nice discussion. And I'll see if we can find that and, and link to that that Twitter discussion because it's it's you know it's limiting 140 characters at a time, but it's challenging at the same time. That you know, okay, can we have an intelligent discussion on this topic with links 140 characters at a time? Absolutely, and 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 can you? Can you find people in a community that you don't know that you might want to interact with that can add to that conversation? Like that—that's the the other thing that I I really um, enjoy about about it is I, I you know through the podcast and and through Twitter I've now kind of gotten to know people that I didn't know before that that I can go to or they can come to me when when I need something or they may have a a, a, a take on something that um, that's different I it's it to me that Twitter is like the the democracy of of the internet all in one spot because like you said you can ignore someone um, who may want to jump in on your conversation and but you might be able to pull some gems out from uh, from others that are out there it's I, I can't I actually can't imagine doing what I do without it now. Like I, 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 I can't go back three years, four years and, and, um, and think about, you know, how, and I don't know if I'm any more effective at what I do. It's just now so much part of, um, what my, what my daily routine is and, and how I'm getting information and how I'm trying to push information out and, 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 interacting with people that I didn't know that, that it's, yeah, it's, it, I'm probably getting, um, more, uh, interviews from, um, from news media, from Twitter than I, than anything else I do. So, it's, Oh, that's, that's really interesting. Yeah. It's, it's fun. Like today, I mean, you said, talked about the randomness of, of what gets tweeted and, and what people pick up on. I, I, I probably put out seven or eight things this morning. Um, and I, you know, I try to do it in between seven and eight a.m. That's just what fits with my day. And the last thing that I tweeted got retweeted uh, four times, and it's uh, just this um, 
uh, article that, that Mickey Parrish, our friend Mickey Parrish, co, co-authored that was in uh, Food Microbiology about a review of foodborne illness outbreaks associated with spices. Oh, you know, I just put something about that in the show notes. I saw that. I saw he did. Yeah. And, and so it's crazy. Like that one, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's really interesting. So I tweeted about, um, you know, the hardy one dried salmonella identified in 10 of the 14 um, outbreaks. And that got retweeted out of, out of anything. That was the only thing that got retweeted by today. And one of them was um, uh, Allison Young, who is a um, uh, reporter for USA Today. And so it's like that kind of stuff is like, man, why did she think that that was interesting? And then maybe that got out there like that. Just being able to pull and connect that that um, that primary literature to, to folks who follow someone on USA Today, whether they click on it or not. I, I just think that that's um, that's cool. That's to me, that's that's part of extension. Like, I, I feel like it's really difficult um, when I when I talk to agents or others in in our world that are like oh yeah the social media thing i'm not into um and it's just like man you you're missing where where i think you should be because this is where the people you're trying to interact with are i think you know it all depends on their community and their audience and all that kind of stuff but it just seems like this is um this is the 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 direction that i want to go oh yeah with without a doubt and and i have to say too when i think of extension and Social media, I think of my colleague, uh, Barb O'Neill, um, who was a longtime uh, county agent um, and is now a specialist in, but in, in, in financial resource management, which you don't think of as typically being something that somebody in extension does. But she, she does stuff on home budgeting and she has a Twitter account and which I follow and she talks about just about like you know, finance and like, you know, I don't know, like she's got, uh, she's got a couple of books, uh, like on, on sh- saving on a shoestring, investing on a shoestring. Um, you know, she's just, she's just really engaged in that. And, and again, she's, uh, probably, you know, my age. So she's somebody who's well into, her, well into her career, very well respected, very well published as a, as a, as a, a scientist and as an educator. Um, but she's decided that Twitter is an important thing and an important part of her outreach. So again, I, you know, but I think people like you and like Barb that do that are, are the exception, not the rule. Yeah. I, I, and I, I hope that it moves more in this direction. Um, because I think we'll, we've got, you know, like like Barb and I just uh, looked her up on Twitter and and started to follow her. Um, mm-hmm. um, the, the stuff, She's kind of boring. Yeah, she well, doesn't listen. She doesn't listen to the podcast. That's fine. It's all about finance stuff. Yeah, but. It's all right. I'm, I'm good with that. I, <laughs> I maybe she'll have something on where I can sell my CDs. Um, <laughs> uh, eBay. eBay. Perfect. Good. Um, but uh, that you know, that that kind of thing. Someone looking for uh, where people are already talking and and that's that takes time and it takes effort and and it's in the world of of cooperative extension i'm on like a cooperative extension soapbox you might hear this um it, it you know we've got folks that that are um that are here to be you know translators of 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 science and translators of technical information what better place to do that where people are already exchanging um information and and to not jump in just seems ludicrous to me um and but i mean that's why i do it so it's like i just feel like it's it's the perfect uh perfect avenue and i've been thinking a lot about this lately because i've got um later this month i've got two talks on social media 
uh, in food safety. And I've, I've, I've had, you know, uh, Doug and I share slides and, and we've had over the last, I mean, going back to 2006, we've, we've had slide sets on blogs and what happened in the spinach outbreak. And, and there's just so many other examples that, that every day are happening um, that, that tell these like really good stories about how someone could use this media to find more people that are associated with an outbreak and do better outbreak investigation. Or if it's a, uh, a, a company, I'm, I'm uh, giving a talk for a, um, a, a big food uh, processing company uh, on how their food safety team might want to interact with with social media and 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 tell their story better and find out what people are talking about and oh that's that's very cool it's fun it's gonna be fun like it's it's all i mean what what i'm excited about it's all new it's all you know i i I could we we could take a, a week's worth of following twitter and and do an entire course on it like i mean there's just example after example so i hope someone gets something out of it i'm looking i'm enjoying pulling the slides together and i'm using uh your strategy of making my slides and then i'm going to give the talk to myself and and um get all the text into uh a, a text uh listening uh program and then uh, write the paper from it. <laughs> awesome i like awesome. it yes so hey so do we have any follow-up because we kind of haven't done much here um <laughs> what do you got um well <laughs> Um, I am, I, I have like, a, as usual, a bazillion windows open, but not the one that has the podcast, uh, notes in it. So, um, oh, and now I've opened, uh, writing buddies because that is how my fingers are trained. Nice. Oh, here's some, here's something in follow up. We got an email from Alejandro, a mesquita, a mesquita, a mesquita. I'm, I'm butchering everyone. Yeah. Just, just think of the, the small buzzing insect. Alejandro, Alejandro Blackfly. <laughs> <laughs> oh. um, so uh, Alejandro uh, emailed you, um, and I hope it's okay that we uh, oh, share his. Oh, I, 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 I think so. I mean, uh, yeah. Um, so he, he emailed you and, uh, and said, uh, speaking uh, at IFP about the impact of media on consumer perception um, and miscommunication, take a look at this article that came out yesterday, one of the UK papers, it was in the Daily Mail, um, and the article is, the headline of the article is, Is Your Laundry Making You Ill? 30 degrees Celsius cycles breed bacteria and transfer germs from your underwear to tea towels. Fantastic headline, by the way. Could not have, I would have done something else. Um, cause I just think it was too long. I would have, my, um, my bar flog headline would have been something like laundry, laundry poop to your tea towel <laughs> or something. Anyway, um, his, uh, his comment on, on this article was the cited expert. If you Google her presents herself as a food safety expert on our website. Um, and he said, I know the topics outside the scope of the subjects we cover in our podcast, but I thought you'd enjoy reading anyway, anyway, particularly the use of scientific terms such as bacterial soup. Uh, I do like bacterial soup, uh, by the way. Um, so the just to, to jump into uh, this article a little bit, um, uh, this is uh, some stuff that was, uh, 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 it looks like sort of commissioned 
by um, the uh, Daily Mail, and they talked to uh, a microbiologist, Dr. Lisa Ackerley, um, and she said this uh, this work or this um, this idea of uh, bacteria being transferred in a laundry machine um, is uh, we she wants to call increased awareness to the term of the sick laundry cycle, and her quote is: "Consumers believe that the normal laundering pro- procedure is clean clothes, but this does not necessarily." translate to hygienically clean. The trend towards reducing washing temperature and water volumes alongside using gentler detergents has affected the efficacy of the laundering process for reducing bacteria and contaminated clothing. It's time to reevaluate the hygiene of our laundry. So, Don, what do you think about the hygiene of our laundry? Well, um, I, you know, it's not something that I worry about on a daily basis. Um, it, there probably is an issue there. I know I was just searching while you were, were chatting there. Um, I know that uh, Chuck Haas has looked at this and has found, has gone into people's homes. And again, for them, those that don't know him, Chuck Haas is a professor at University of Arizona, um, known among some circles as Dr. Germ. He's the guy that goes out and looks for bacteria in all kinds of places, including hotel rooms and, and people's homes and things like that. And he has gone and, and looked at um, um, you know, in in um, washing machines and on laundry, and has found bacteria. So, I mean, Ben, you might not know this, but there are actually bacteria all around us. No. Yes. And when you uh, let me let me just uh, clarify something. When you you said Chuck Haas, I think you mean Chuck oh, Gerba, right? Did I, did I say Chuck Haas? I mean Chuck Gerba. Chuck Gerba is another I, fantastic I, listener. I confuse I confuse them because they're both named Chuck, and also they pu- sometimes publish together. So, <laughs> so uh, Chuck Chuck Gerba and uh, Chuck Haas and Joan Rose have published a book on quantitative microbial risk assessment. Very good book. Uh, apparently, they're working on an update, eagerly awaited. Um, but yeah, so 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 Chuck Gerba is is known in some circles as Doctor Germ and has made a career really out of doing microbiological kind of survey, among other things, uh, microbiological survey work. Um, and yeah, I mean, a number of years ago, he did uh, look at laundry and has found problems. So it doesn't surprise me. And if you think about it, um, you wear your underwear in close proximity to your butt, and poop comes out your butt. So. It's not surprising that poop bacteria could get on your underwear, and it's probably a good idea to wash that underwear with soap and in hot water. That's really hard to uh, disagree with. Um, And occasionally that might not happen, and so I suspect if you went and surveyed, um, you know, people's laundries or their underwear, you would find uh, bacteria. And, you know, I mean... (laughs) Anyway, <laughs> yeah, right. I, I, it's hard for me to get worked up about this. I did like that you said that Chuck Gerba is goes into people's houses, and just, like <laughs> well, with their permission, with their permission, he's, he shows up. He's for those if if someone's listening to this podcast and they're at work right now, Chuck, <laughs> Chuck Gerba's probably in your house, um, swabbing the inside of your of your washing machine. Probably. Right now, as Maybe. we speak. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't get worked up from this. And this goes back to, I mean, this is a little bit of follow-up. Talking about um, uh, Pete Snyder in, in episode uh, 40, 47, um, uh, you know, we don't have any outbreaks. 
you know, can you can we think of now? Sure, there's lots of sporadic cases, but can we think of any any outbreaks? Even even something like I would think of it this way, Don. That the likely place that you would have a washing machine related outbreak would be somewhere like a hotel, right? Somewhere where you've got multiple people, um, a lot of mixing that's going on, um, potentially uh, you know a lot of pathogens coming in. It's unlikely something like this is going to happen in in a home um, setting. And so, so, so the, the, the perfect storm is um, someone comes into a, an outbreak or a, a hotel, they've got norovirus, they vomit on a bed, um, and then the, uh, the service staff picks up those, the laundry and, uh, and then throws that into a washing machine. Then, oh, my gosh, we have virus particles all over the place. Well, damn, stuff like that hasn't happened, at least that we've, that we've identified, right? I mean, there's, there's been... Um, norovirus outbreaks in hotels before, but but laundry and and sheets aren't the aren't the source that I that I've that I've seen. So so going back to to the Pete Snyder smell test, um, it, it's really well. Have we had an outbreak? Is this a risk? I mean, there, the hazard is there, like you said. Yeah. What's the probability of this uh, leading to uh, to illnesses? To to get into my you know my true risk to to grasp my true risk feelings? Well, we 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 haven't seen outbreaks, so it's really hard for us to 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 determine that this actually happens. Theoretically, sure, um, but it's hard to get worked up about it. And I think I might want to call this episode the Pete Snyder smell test. <laughs> Don, I think you're on mute. I think that would be a great idea, Ben. Yes, yeah, sorry. <laughs> sorry, laughing uproariously on this end. Oh, um, but, yeah, you know, the other place where we might see outbreaks uh, would be a college dormitory. Again, uh, college students maybe that don't know how to do laundry because their mom has always done it for them. Again, you know, norovirus gets in there. And, we, again, we, we see norovirus outbreaks that spread very rapidly through communities. We have no idea of the role of laundry in that. So it might enti- be entirely possible that when we have these sort of community-focused norovirus outbreaks or on cruise ships or in other circumstances, I guess people have to do laundry on cruise ships, right? Um, sure. So, um, you know, in the in those kind of community environments, laundry may in fact play a role, but there really isn't any any evidence. But again, you know, it's a good idea. You should wear clean clothes. You should clean your clothes properly. Um, other than that, it's it's kind of hard to get worked up about it. Um, my my last thing on this, as I was reading the um, that the article that Alejandro sent us, was this idea of. Uh, um, Lisa Ackerley, who's who's quoted in here, talks about um, you know 30 degrees Celsius is great, a uh, great growth um, uh, temperature. But we've got to look at laundry as a system. Let's throw norovirus out. Let's focus on on bacteria here. Well, laundry as a system is probably not the greatest growth uh, process, right? Like you've got we got some water and it's going to sit there for a while. But then I do this thing afterwards where I throw all that laundry that might've grown some vegetative cells into a dryer and I give it this really dry heat. Now it might be good for me to preserve some salmonella, but for the majority of, uh, uh, of other pathogens, I'm going to take care of it. Um, as I dry that, uh, as I dry out that, that laundry. So, I mean, it's, it, 
I, I don't know. I yeah. I I just like our like banana washing. Um, right. Well, and it's and you know, and it's and it's 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 dry heat at the end, but it's wet heat at the beginning because the clothes are wet. Right. So, um, and you know, the the rule of thumb that I've heard, and I don't I don't remember where I saw this. Otherwise, I, we'd link to it. Um, if you see a headline with a question mark in it, the answer is no. So is your laundry making you ill? No. The answer is no. no. That's good. <laughs> I'm not, I, this is, this is now going to go into my, uh, my, I don't know, my, I'm going to do it all the time. I'm going to see, it's kind of like, um, reading, uh, fortune cookies by saying in bed at the end of it. Right. Is your laundry I, making you ill in bed? I, I think I think it may, and you, you, we sh- you should search Daring Fireball because this might be this might be a John Gruberism for talking about all of the the anti Apple uh, websites. Is Apple doomed? Question mark. The answer yeah. is no. <laughs> Excellent. Hey, you mentioned something about dry t- dry heat and wet heat, and I have something that's not in in our notes, but I wanted to ask you about. Sure. Um, I had uh, you might have seen this uh, about a week ago, ten days ago. Uh, NPR's blog, The Salt, uh, put out a. Um, uh, a, a post about cooking meals in the dishwasher. Did you see this? You know what this is all about? I did not see this. Okay. this. This sounds like cooking meals on your car engine. Yes. Yeah. Cooking. It's it's very similar. Oh, I think I have heard of dishwasher cooking. Yes. So there's there. I, I've come across this in the past um, a couple of years ago, a few years ago. Two things uh, popped up. One was this idea of someone wanted to can, um, like to process their jelly jars or jam jars in their um, in their dishwasher. And by process, I don't mean sterilize. Like they're going to make their jam. They're going to take those, um, those jars and put the lids on them, put the bands on them, throw them in the dishwasher. And then, um, you'll run through a cycle and then the heat would, would then, um, you know, process for five minutes. So that was the first time I ran into this. Second time was around the same time. Someone asked me about cooking salmon in tinfoil in your dishwasher. And so the, the recipe goes, um, and it, apparently this has been around for a while. You take uh, a nice, you know, cut of salmon, put it very, uh, wrap, you know, uh, tightly wrapped in tinfoil, a little bit of lemon juice, uh, put it on the top shelf of your, of your dishwasher, run the cycle. And lo and behold, it's like sous vide and you have a very creamy, not overcooked, dried out uh, piece of salmon. So those are, that, that was my introduction to this, but it popped up again last week uh, with this post on the, uh, on the salt. And um, it was uh, about, you know, a whole meal in the dishwasher and, and multiple things. And as I dug a little bit deeper, there's um, Slate's done some cooking. Uh, Oprah, her website uh, talked about this. And, and gosh, I don't know how we didn't know about it or it didn't come up, but um but this is apparently in the in, in the pop culture uh, foodie world. So, um, why I'm asking you about this is because uh, uh, a, a freelancer for Food Safety News called me up um, last week and said, "Have you seen this post? What do you think about uh, cooking in, in a dishwasher?" And and this is, I guess my 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 take on it is, um, I mean, it could be fine for certain things. Um, it gave the example in, um, in in one of the articles that I saw on on um, uh, asparagus. So you take asparagus, you throw it into a mason jar uh, with a little bit of um, seasoning, and you uh, you run your cycle. Well, I'm not worried. I mean, something like asparagus, I'm not worried about a temperature, an endpoint temperature, um, unless I'm you know going through chemotherapy or I'm, I'm, I'm for whatever immunocompromised reason I'm avoiding raw fruits and vegetables, and and this wouldn't particularly cook it. But for something like that, that seems you know like that would be pretty low risk. 
But then there are other um, items like uh, Korean barbecue, uh, beef barbecue, and and um, other meat products. And the question becomes, Don, I assume you have a dishwasher. Maybe you don't. I do. But what temperature does your dishwasher get to? And is it a dry heat or a wet heat? And what temperature would a food item in your in your dishwasher get to? And that's that, a lot of that's a lot of questions, Ben. Could we is. could we take those one at a time? No, no, I want you. And I just one word answer for all of it. Uh, but I mean, it that, depends. Yeah, it depends. That um, was. Oh, sorry, yeah. So I so I don't I no I don't know the temperature of my dishwasher. Um, the 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 water in my dishwasher. I suspect that it's pretty gosh darn hot because when the dishes are finished and I and I pull open the door. The uh, the ceramic uh, plates and bowls are are almost too hot to touch. So so, but again, that's like piping hot, right? I mean, I don't know what that means. Um, is it a wet heat or a dry heat? Well, it depends upon whether the packaging is leaking or not, right? Mm. Um, so I guess it's kind of a wet heat, but but you know, and then the other, the other thing that's occurring to me during during our discussion about this is, are you are you cooking this food at the same time that you're doing the dishes? Well, and if so, then you're using soap for cleaning your dishes, which you don't want to get on the food. So you better make sure that that package integrity is really good. If you're not doing the dishes at the same time you're cooking this food, that is an awfully inefficient way to cook. <laughs> <laughs> All of these things are... Are, are exact points that, that that came to my mind. Okay, good. And um, and, and the idea, you know, it depends on what recipe you, you find. Some of this is, oh well, um, yeah, you run this at the same time, uh, and but you you absolutely have to make sure that whatever uh, container you're using is is tight, is sealed. And then I get I get into this little bit of a worry of, well, I'm going to cook something, and this is the you know. Uh, not this is the way to do to do it wrong. Well, I'm going to cook something overnight, or I'm going to run the dishwasher, and then I'm going to have my breakfast is going to be all cooked in the morning. And I've now created, you know, I'm going to do it in a mason jar with the with the lid on it, and I've now heated up this uh, product in, in, inside, and I've let it sit for a while, but it was cooked, so it should be fine. Um, and then it might be low acid, and I'm going to eat it in the morning or the next day after it's set there, and maybe had some Clostridium botulinum spores um, do their thing and uh, germinate and outgrow to, uh, to cells and create the toxin and all that good stuff. So it's, I mean, it's, it, like a lot of these things, what I kind of arrived at was, yeah, I mean, is it is it good or bad? I mean, I can't answer that question. Could it go bad? Sure. Could it go fine? Yeah. Is it, there are certain things that are low risk, um, but uh, you know, it's really hard in anything that we do to say, oh, d- wash. You know, cooking in your dishwasher is a great thing to do or a really bad thing to do. No, it's like if you want to do it, I, I guess that's okay. You can also cook stuff on your car engine. Um, but, you know, I, who – Ben, Ben, who has time for this? I People got the time, Don. That's uh, – we just got to give them the tools to do it right. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I be – you know, I don't know. I mean, I you know, I, I wouldn't – I wouldn't – the first the – first, to me, step one is – Figure out how hot your dishwasher water is. So if, if I wanted to, you know, often when I'm working with an entrepreneur that wants to get into the food business, I'll give them 
what is a reasonable first step that I also know is quite difficult. So you know what? Here's the thing. You want my blessing to cook food in your dishwasher? That's great. Tell me how hot the the water gets in the dishwasher. Step one. If you can do that, then then we'll have a discussion. Uh, yes, and you know there are there are tabs in the um, or or test strips in the for commercial um, dishwashers that that'll tell you what temperature it got to. And, which is, and that's great. Yeah. Go go buy some of buy those. Buy some of those. Exactly. Report and, back. And, and from what you know, I, I spent a little bit of time on this, and I had one of my one of my grad students, Ben Raymond. Um, we you know this we this became this one of these really kind of fun questions. Like, okay, well, let's what would that flow chart be? You know, like like you're talking about. So so those those strips exist. Unfortunately, the ones that are that are out there will. Are, are typically a measure to 180 degrees Fahrenheit. Great, because as we dug a little bit deeper into what um, commercial dishwashers, 180 degrees Fahrenheit is is what the standard that's in the FDA food code. Right. Uh, in your home, most dishwashers are somewhere from from what the internet says get to in, in between 145 and 165 degrees Fahrenheit. So you don't have strips that you can test very easily. So it becomes this like, whoa, it's really hard to do this kind of thing i just I, this has become a really fun um little little question in fact um hannah one of your grad students uh worked uh this summer and we talked about this in a previous podcast on um working with our school system and uh doing some temperature tracking she uh she used some data loggers and ben's got those data loggers in his possession and is going to cook a couple of meals in his own home um dishwasher and and see what those data loggers say because not only is that temperature of your water matter it's how long is it at that temperature and what does the, the, the food itself get to? So he's going right. to test out these strips and throw the data loggers into a couple of the, um, uh, the products. And then maybe we'll have this fun little blog post. Maybe we'll even do a paper on it. Yeah, that would be a nice article, I think, for something like Food Protection Trends because you're absolutely right. You have to know at a very simplistic level how hot does it get. But then you also have to know as well what's the time and temperature profile of that and then what's the, the food that you're cooking, what's the packaging for the food because you want it packaged, I'm assuming you want it packaged in such a way that it doesn't um, leak and so that you have some sort of a watertight package. But then what's the heat penetration? So yeah. All of that becomes really important to know if you if you really want to use this as a cooking measure. Absolutely. So it was fun. I like this stuff. I like that this that, you know something weird that popped up um, led to uh, you know we just don't have there's no there's no paper on there's no data on it so let's go let's go do something quick and, and, and see if it works. And you know here's the thing. I mean, looking at this the story on the salt and looking at the previous story on the laundry. If you if you go to those web pages and we'll link to them in the show notes. Um, there are. Hundreds or thousands of comments. So people people are engaged with this. Um, yeah, there's well, there's, there's yeah, there's hundreds of comments. There's thousands of shares um, with respect to some of these stories. And so I mean, people are really interested in this stuff and and really are engaged around it. So um, it's uh, I mean, you know. It, it, it's interesting, and, and and the fact that there really is very little science um, means that there's opportunities for us to go in there and 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 contribute something to the discussion scientifically. Absolutely. Well, let's. The, you, you bring up a point that that gets me to the next topic that I wanted to talk about, um, which is. Uh, Something else that appeared on um, NPR's Assault last week that got uh, hundreds and hundreds of comments into the thousands, and it was uh, some work that uh, our, our uh, colleague at Drexel and former Rutgers and NC State um, student uh, Jennifer Quinlan did on washing poultry, um, and that 
it, it's the same kind of thing. It's this, she, she and I had conversed a little bit last week cause she was, she had asked about, well, how can we do some more social media? I'm getting a crazy amount of calls. We put out this, um, this education piece, uh, that was based on some focus groups we did with, um, low income families, which, um, a paper that was uh, published last fall showing that, um, uh, in different ethnic groups, um, have, uh, uh, culturally are more likely to wash poultry uh, before they they cook it and um, uh, she's a, a graduate student Shauna Henley that's that's working on this on this stuff and Jennifer I think was a little taken aback by how um, how crazy things got like like that people really cared about this and that there were these like lo- lines drawn on the internet of well washing chicken is is a great thing or washing chicken is is you know is is um we need to do it for quality reasons or you know this person's crazy and i mean it got to the point where um Wyatt Snack from the Daily Show and Alton Brown were tweeting about it like i mean that's that's the the epitome of getting your stuff into pop culture right <laughs> that's fantastic yeah it's but but it, it was the I, she she was I, I mean really i think um in our email conversations she's like i just didn't know people cared this much and to look at the comment field she's like i think i might get death threats about it well but good well but i mean good for her man that's why we do this stuff right to make an impact and to and to get people engaged and boy she should sure did do that she did she i'm going to share an email that i put in the show notes um that she sent me uh after i forwarded the alton brown tweet and the alton brown tweet was actually pretty um uh, our, our friend Tom Tom Siebert um, had retweeted it, and that's how I, I saw it. But Alton Brown basically drew a a picture of how to how to wash your the inside of your chicken safely. Um, and I don't know if you saw the tweet. We'll link to it in show notes. I, I didn't, but I'm you know I'm a big fan of Alton Brown. He he as one of those people who 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 talks about food and who has a show about food. He he really gets the food science right, and he really gets the food safety right. So um, I had I think I had to stop following him on Twitter because everything was a photograph. He wasn't actually <laughs> tweeting text. It's good. I like that. Um, <laughs> and it's just like I I, yeah, I get it. It's 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 great. But I'm I'm really not. I'm really can't. I don't have the time for this. I'd rather follow you on Instagram. Right. Uh, um, so um, when I sent uh, the, tw- the tweet to Jennifer, she said, thanks for forwarding the Alton Brown tweet. I just went up immeasurably in the estimation of my teenagers when they stumbled on the fact that Wyatt Snat had, Snat had tweeted the following, and it was, Jennifer Quinlan is the Edward Snowden of poultry washing. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> it's awesome. It's so good. But, but I mean, that's like, to, to, to your point, Don, why we do this is to make impact. Sometimes it's random on what makes impact and what doesn't. And this is one that, that was really emotional for people. And, 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 um, uh, the, the conversation that happened on the, uh, on the salt. I mean, if you look at the, the comment fields, which I've been more and more interested in, um, lately, uh, shows this, w- what this dialogue's about. And I, and, and Jennifer's, she, the reason why she reached out to me was, and Dasa and Doug and I was to say, okay, well, I'd like to can you guys put something on barf blog and, and be the place to, to answer questions, you know, you know, scientifically or, um, you know, that, that it's not just crazy people that are, um, that are commenting on it. And, and so we put a post up and, and that was cool. But as I, I kind of shared with her, 
over email. And as I got thinking about this talk that I'm going to give um, to this food company on social media is no, you, you can't do that. Like that's, that's almost the, that, that's fine, but that's the wrong strategy. The strat, the right strategy is to get, to jump back into NPR and write a guest post and then deal with the comments on the, on the field, on the comment field, because that's where people are. That's where they're not going to come to, to barf blog, to comment on this. They're, they're already doing it in the moment um, on, on that, uh, on that page. And, and so I, you know, she's um, she got the same recommendation from one of her um, communication folks at, at Drexel, and she's in the process of, of posting something um, back at NPR. But man, um, it's it's fun it's fun to watch this stuff, and, and when it gets into uh, pop culture, I love it. And 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 the, but you're but this kind of reiterates the point that of why you're on Twitter. You have to go where the conversation is, and so if the conversation is on the Salt's blog post. You have to go there. Absolutely. And and then if you want to write a longer piece, link back to it from the blog from from the comments field if the comments field allows you to link. So um and, and in the case of where where you know some blogs don't have comments, in which case, well, then you need to make your own blog and and, and put up a, a response there. And if the person who had the original blog post, you know, likes what you have to say, maybe they'll, they'll, you know, they'll, they'll send a, you know, put a, put a link there and send people back your way. But we're still trying to figure, I think we as a culture are still figuring out how this internet communication thing works. And, and for now, I mean, the action is in, is in the comments. I mean, I got into it a while back on raw milk and went on some raw milk websites, you know, um, got into the comments there and there's, there's just some, you know, there's some loopy people there uh, that that like you know that like to argue and don't like to read, um, and it's just like well okay I'm done here you know I've I've said my two cents I've I've gone back and tried to interject some science and common sense into what you're saying and I, I'm I'm done I I have to go I have to go or do my real job which is unfortunately not surfing comments and, and writing responses because it's just kind of the same reason why I unsubscribed from the food safety listserv. It's just like this could become my, my entire job doing this and I have other things I need to do. I need to go write papers. I need to go mentor graduate students. I like doing this and it's good to do and, and if I could figure out a way to make it my day job, you know, I would but but I have I have other things I have to do. I can't spend all my time doing this. I want to make it my day job too. <laughs> well, you're, you're young. You, you probably could make doing food safety on twitter your day job i'm trying i'm trying the best i can <laughs> it's a dream it is it's, it is a dream it's always good to dream well my, my, I, I had a dream that my uh that my day job would be analyzing data and making models and it pretty much that is my job now so uh dreams can come true ben well it's good i'm there to dream don <laughs> um so what else? oh you know what we haven't done so, because we've we've been like a, a very nonlinear uh, food safety talk podcast today, we have not done the replacement for um, uh, bug trivia. That's true. So we've got something new, as we mentioned in in a previous episode um, in uh, forty six and forty seven, that we're going to jump into this history of the hundred years of IAFP and go back to um, the roots of food safety and food microbiology, which was so lovely collated by multiple a committee of, of folks um, as part of the IAFP 100th uh, anniversary and, and I know of two or three people that were um, involved in this uh, uh, Michelle Daniluk and, and Carl Custer and um, I think I want to say that Katie Swanson and, and Julian Cox were but but I'm I, well I'm going to say that I may well, be wrong it's 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 a cast of thousands it's a ca- that's good like like the Muppet show 
or something. Yes. <laughs> um, so, so if you if you will um, if you will give the uh, intro, I will I will start us off. Sounds good. Um, so the intro for this is. Oh, I better. <clears throat> Food safety history. Nice. Thanks. I'm going to try that one from now on. So uh, this is uh, 100 years of IAFP journals. That's International Association for Food Protection Journals. And um, it goes by decades, but for the first block, um, many years were considered at once because the, the, there just was not a lot to report. And, and so I'm going to be reading from the pre-1940 entry. And this entry was compiled by Michelle Daniluk and Linda Harris. And I'm not going to do the whole thing uh, because it's, it's, far, it's far too long, but I will do a bit of it and then we will come back to it. So we will stretch out the pre-1940 part of uh, this new segment of Food Safety Talk. So, as Ben said, um, uh, the uh, professional one of the professional societies uh, that we're both a member of, the International Association for Food Protection, recently celebrated its 100th anniversary, um, and the um, the Food Protection Trends Management Committee, which is a committee of folks that oversee one of our two journals. Um, um, with the support of the 100-Year Planning Committee, formed a subcommittee to review seminal work that was published in IAFP journals. And so for, for each month from January to August of, of 2011, the subcommittee selected one article from each decade that was um, uh, published in, the, in, in a journal and provided a commentary on why the work is relevant, significant, or has impacted what we do today. So I'm going to take us all the way back to the very beginning. Um, the first issue of a journal called the Journal of Milk Technology, um, Volume 1, Issue 1, was published in October of 1937 as a special convention issue. Now, there are a couple of points to make here. The Journal of Milk Technology eventually became the Journal of Food Protection. Okay. Now, as I said, IAFP has been in in 2011 have been in existence for a hundred years, which means that the association started in 1911. But the first issue of the Journal of Milk Technology was published in 1937. Prior to this, there was something called the Proceedings of the International Association of Milk Sanitarians. This was a report uh, on the topic of their annual meetings, and that was published annually for 25 years. So um, the uh, subcommittee of the association publication, so kind of like a predecessor of the, the Food Protection Trends Management Committee, um, formally uh, designated the Journal of Milk Technology as the official publication of the journal, which would be published in lieu of the annual report, and that beginning in January of 1938, the journal would be inaugurated as a bi-monthly publication. So I think, uh, Ben, that is a good place to stop. And so that will be the uh, that will be the end of uh, this um, uh, history flashback. IFP, no, <clears throat> food safety history. Yeah, I'm going to have to work on that, Don. I, I think so. Yeah, it's not, it just doesn't have the, the pizzazz yet. Um, I, w- I wanted to just comment really quick on, on this. And we, we've talked about raw milk a, a few times before, but I don't think I've ever mentioned sort of the connection to the institute that I did all of my degrees at, at the University of Guelph and, and raw milk and, and, and that kind of um, stuff. And, and I only say that because of this, um, the, the history of, of food safety is, you know, as, as you mentioned, is so very um, c- 
connected to to milk technology um, and and milk you know pasteurization and and, um, and and that affects on on safety. Anyway, the, I I came across just recently a, um, an article in the Toronto Star from uh, a couple of years ago um, that. Um, uh, talked about this sort of hundred years of raw milk and uh, pasteurization in Ontario, and um, there's been a, 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 I mean, gosh, over the last five or six years, there's been a, um, a lot of public discussion in Ontario. And a guy named Michael Schmidt um, from Durham, Ontario, uh, was uh, famously uh, arrested for selling raw milk, and he's a um, sort of defies. Um, defines himself as a crusader. But anyway, so the article's a little bit about him, and I'm not going to go into that, but I'm going to go about into the history of this a little bit. Um, and the Toronto Star refers to a woman named Adelaide Hoodless. Um, and Adelaide Hoodless um, was um, back in uh, 1889. Her son died of uh, undulant fever. And at that point, she devoted herself to educating women in the domestic sciences and giving them um, an institution to, to do so. And so she created um, uh, something called the Women's Institute, uh, Home Economics, and created uh, the McDonald Institute at the University of Guelph. And that institute, McDonald Hall, was a all-women's uh, residence um, next to one of the residences that, that I lived in for, for a couple of years. But that, that institute um, also sort of brought on... Um, uh, consumer, well, food, food safety and food science uh, in the home, consumer sciences, and uh, I took a, a couple of classes when I was in graduate school from that from that work. But it was all, I mean, that the the history is is traced directly to um, this idea of milk safety back uh, 130 years ago, so 120 years ago. So as you were reading that, I was like, hey, I got, I want to talk, I want to mention that. Oh, that's neat. And I've just been looking at this uh, Toronto Star article, um, and I, I, there's one quote that I, I really like. Um, it's, um, it's, so it's talking about um, uh, Adelaide Hoodless and kind of put, put her, as you said, uh, sort of pitted her against uh, uh, Michael Schmidt as two people kind of uh, separated by time but in opposition to each other. Um, and the quote from the, the Star is, oddly, each of their campaigns has been described as an attempt to empower people and encourage them to take more responsibility for the food they produce and consume. And I just I love I love those kind of contradictory things where here you have two two people each kind of fighting for this one thing, but ending up in direct opposition to each other because of how they interpret what that one thing means. Hmm. Yeah, that's 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 key. That's good, Don. Nice. Thanks. Yeah. Well, it's, um, I, you know, I, I, after having watched The Wire, because <laughs> we have to talk about The Wire, um, I, I love this, uh, you know, the, I love the fact that things are complicated and sometimes, you know, they don't make sense or, or that there's, there's ambiguity. So anyway. Uh, we've talked a little bit about that. That's one of the draws to many of the TV shows that I watch. And that's one of the things that Kristen doesn't like, right? <laughs> Right, she likes she likes the bad guys to be punished at the end. Yeah, <laughs> like I like uh, I like the bad guys are good guys sometimes. Um, hey, cool. So, so one thing I would I would like well, what what do you have something that you because we're kind of running out of time here. We're we're over at one hour in. Um, do you have something that you absolutely want to talk about today? I got I got one thing, but I but you go ahead next, and we'll see if we can get to it. Okay, well, so we'll do we'll I want to do my my. Uh, I'll do my one thing first, but it's really, um, it's really more, um, 
It's really more something for you. So we talked earlier in the podcast about this New York Times article. Um, and the headline of the New York Times article is Salmonella in Spices Prompts Change in Farming. Um, we'll link to it in the show notes. But basically... And I'll, again, read from, from the article and, and, and uh, we'll give uh, links to the, the peer-reviewed publication. Um, uh, basically, what, uh, what the article says is there was a three-year study that FDA, FDA officials have discussed publicly and recently published in the journal Food Microbiology. Um, and it forms an important part of the spice analysis and I guess the full analysis that we made public soon. And uh, Mike Taylor is quoted as saying, Salmonella is a widespread problem with respect to imported spices. Uh, the deputy FDA commissioner for food said, in an interview, we've decided that spices are one of the significant issues we need to be addressing right now. So certainly, you know, interesting stuff from, from Mike Taylor there. Now, what happened was that our, uh, our dean um, read this New York Times article over the weekend, and he's like, oh, we got to get Schaffner on this. So he talked to, well, he talked to my department chair. But he also talked to the uh, media person at the college, and she said, well, you know, Bob wants to do something on this, so we have to do something right away. So I'm like, okay, no problem. Let's do it. You know, and she said, well, we should do it in the form of a Q&A. So, um, so we wrote a press release, which apparently the, the folks uh, high up at Rutgers liked, and so it's going to go out on the, you know, the Rutgers you know, university press release thing, which means that it probably won't get picked up. But anyway, there it is. Um, but what I thought would be very interesting for our listeners, so to, to do this press release, we did it in the form of a Q&A. And so I helped Paula to write the press release, so I know my answers for the Q&A. So what I thought would be very interesting for the listeners would be for me to pose the questions to you. You don't know what my answers are. I'll pose the questions to you. You can give your answer, and then we can see what I said, and then we'll we'll see whether we agree or disagree. How does that sound? Oh man, this sounds like uh, this sounds like a test today. Um, I'm, <laughs> no pressure. I, yeah, no, I'm I'm in because uh, I, I think this will be this will be fun. Okay, and and obviously the answers are going to be somewhat different because I had you know kind of plenty of time and full access to the internet to craft my careful responses, whereas you are on the hot seat and you have to listen to the question and answer and type and look for stuff on the internet all at the same time. So, um, but that's okay. That's, uh, you, can, you can return the favor someday. Um, uh, so, uh, first question, why is the U.S. <laughs> I feel like we need some Jeopardy music. Do, do, do. <laughs> I can't, look, Don, I can't provide the music as well. You've got me doing so much here. <laughs> Okay. Um, why is the U.S. Food and Drug Administration concerned about spices, Ben? Well, I think that the U.S. Um, Food and Drug Administration's so concerned about spices because they've done some uh, some work that was published in this uh, this article that you've already mentioned um, that shows uh, uh, from their surveillance that uh, um, spices. Uh, both domestic and uh, imported, but uh, the paper uh, relies on uh, or focuses on uh, on imported, um, show quite a bit of contamination of different salmonella strains. And in fact, um, uh, they said uh, um, it was somewhere between I think it was seven percent, somewhere around seven percent of the um, spices that were were uh, included in the surveillance uh, were were positive for at least one strain of salmonella. So, so it's it's one of these things that um, is uh, the the more we know about the uh, contamination levels, the the more um, excitement uh, FDA uh, is uh, shows, and um, this is compared to um, other surveillance uh, of 
um, fresh fruits and vegetables, other, other foods that uh, radiate foods, this is quite high, uh, comparatively speaking. Well done. So essentially, I said the same thing. I said in a recently published study, uh, and I just cribbed from the New York, New York Times article here, in a recently published study of more than uh, 20,000 food shipments, FDA found 7% of spice lots contaminated with salmonella, twice the average of other imported foods. 15% of coriander, 12% of oregano and basil were contaminated, high levels of contamination in sesame seed, curry powder, and cumin. 4% of black, shipper, black pepper shipments were contaminated. So I said it was essentially the same thing. So I, I would Ooh. say uh, uh, we, we agree. Uh, on that one. Next question. Ding. <laughs> that's, that's what you're supposed to do when you get it right. Right. Or when we agree. It's not that we're right. Yeah, it's just that we agree. Yeah. Right. Um, I like to eat spicy foods, Ben. Do I need to be worried? Well, Don, all food carries some risk. Uh, um, I, this, this, is a tough, this is a tough one to, to answer. This is, I think um, this is in the same vein of do you eat foods with spices? Um, in it, and I guess uh, how I would typically answer a question like this, or how I'm going to answer this question, is um, the that yeah, foods foods carry risk. Um, I want to um, trust that the supplier of my spices uh, is doing something for food safety uh, that goes all the way back to production. And spices are um, are tough because uh, they they come from uh, developing parts of the world, um, uh, typically. And, and as this paper sort of mentioned or, or alludes to, and when it comes to salmonella, salmonella, uh, does pretty well in, uh, dried environments or, or dry environments. So, um, I, it's, it has to do with, um, with production a little bit. So do I, do I worry more about spices than I did before this was, um, uh, th this was published? No, because I think the the world of um, low moisture foods is, has evolved uh, evolved a lot in the last little while to show that this is a, a riskier type of um, type of product. Now, if I am really worried about the spice, or if I'm in a immunocompromised um, type. Um, Life's, I have to worry about uh, food safety more than others, then I'm probably going to add some sort of uh, wet heat uh, to, the, uh, to the dish. I'm not going to um, sprinkle on some, some dried oregano on top of my pizza after it's done and eat it ready right to eat. Uh, if I'm going to use spices, I'm going uh, I'm, I'm to try and take care of those um, stressed but vegetative cells of salmonella by, by adding some wet heat. Good. That's very good. Um, so my answer was, I also like to eat spicy foods, oh, and I have nice. not changed my eating habits in response to the findings of this study. What I, what I didn't say was, I'm a microbiologist, so I already followed the literature, and I already knew they were risky. But anyway, I have not changed my eating habits. Um, and then I go on to say in the press release, when I shop for spices, I look for name brands and companies that I can trust. If you're concerned about the space, safety of spices you purchase, contact the vendor and ask them what they do to ensure their spices are safe, which is almost verbatim what you said. So I think that's also agreement that's good that's good i i you you took it to another level there i actually didn't i, I just said something about trust and then i got on a different tangent you're that's that that point that you make is is exactly it is if we want to um as a consumer put some pressure um on those companies to be able to answer that question um and the ones that can answer it well and say things like yeah we require our spice 
uh, producers to follow good agricultural practices, and we um, have a way to verify that, and we do some testing. I mean, all those things is what what makes it for a good uh, a good answer. But I didn't. Uh, you, you you did better at that than I did. Well, I also I also had more time to think about it. So, um, <laughs> but but yeah, but you know, and I, and you know, it kind of gets back to the idea of marketing food safety. I mean, if, if we if food companies don't want to market food safety, we should ask customers to ask companies why they don't market food safety or ask customers to ask companies, you know, what they do to ensure food safety. Absolutely. Okay. Um, the next one is, um, I think we'll, in the interest of time, we will skip the next one because it was like, what do I do if I experience food poisoning? And I just basically cribbed directly from the CDC website. So, um, but, um, let's see, here's, here's a good one. Um, are there any other resources I can find on the subject? How can I find out what my country, what, how can I find out what country my spices come from? Ooh. Well, um, so I would go back to that, your, your previous answer about contacting the suppliers. I think that I would highlight that um, the nature of spices um, and the just the the supply chain for, for dried goods is sometimes t- difficult to trace. Um, but a good, a good company, um, and whether I'm buying them at retail or, or getting them, um, in my food at, at food service, a good company is, should be able to tell me, you know, like you said, what the brand name is. So then I can follow up, um, to see whether, um, uh, you know, where, with with them to find out, you know, whether they know where where it came from, they should be able to um, to at least give me an idea of that. But this brings up a, a, a this is a, a, a good question because that's if I'm buying it. So Don, I'm, this is me turning the tables on you. So I've got a bunch of pepper that's sitting in a pepper mill on my counter that I probably fill up, you know, once every five months. It's pretty hard for me to figure out. I might not even know or remember where I got it from, and then to go back to that um, to that company and say, "Well, can you tell me about where you got your ground pepper or your peppercorns six months ago?" Um, they may not be able to, to to know that. So I think this is a, this is a really tough question to answer. How do you? I mean, how would you reconcile that um, that piece of uh, of it? You know, it's it's fine on the pur- on the purchasing, but in the stuff that's already sitting in my in my kitchen, that's in in some sort of a uh, a container that that's not its original packaging. I mean, I think it's really hard to figure out where it came from. Ben, that answer is not in my script, <laughs> so I cannot answer your question. Um, no, <laughs> it's, it's a good question. Um, what I said was, um, people should. Uh, if they're if they're concerned about food recalls, um, they should look on the FDA website for information about food recalls, which is kind of a a non-answer to the question it, it, because if you go to that website, you can see that there's just a ton of stuff and the spices are not particularly singled out. Um, it, the question about what country my spices come from um, was an interesting one. It made me <clears> – <throat> do a little bit of research on country of origin labeling and and uh, country of origin labeling is required but but only for certain foods and that's a provision of the USDA uh, ag marketing service and there's a web a web page there that um, I, um, I I provided a link to in the press release but country of origin labeling is only required for um, excuse me <clears throat> Only required for meats, fish, shellfish, fruits and vegetables, some nuts, and for some reason, ginseng. So country of origin labeling is not required for spices. And so the best bet is just to contact the company on the label. What do you do about the black pepper in your pepper mill? Um, 
the best advice I have, and it's not very good advice, but the best advice I have is, um, you know, uh, like well, the way it works in, in our house is we do like to grind our own pepper and usually we have the container kind of sitting around until it's gone. So we'll grind a little bit at a time. So almost always I still have the container I can look at. And so if I read something in the news about black pepper recall, I could go find that container and I could look at it and I'd say, okay, is this the company that was implicated? Or I've got the container so I can call the toll-free number or I can find out the contact information for the company and contact them. But um, but you're right. I mean, for, to a certain degree, you really have to kind of trust that. And, and I think about this. It's like, I mean, and, and this is, I think probably a thing that most food safety people have. Um, Michelle, Michelle J, I guess, I think it was Michelle J posted a picture of chickens on Facebook. And I I'll say, when I look at chickens, I think salmonella. And I think the same thing every time I go, re, you know, reach into the spice container and get out some black pepper to sprinkle on my, my salad. It's like, oh, salmonella. Yep. <laughs> You can't do much about it. And, yeah, at that point, you can't do much about it. Um, but that actually, that brings us back to um, what I think is the last question I'm going to ask you here. Um, uh, how do I reduce my risk of food poisoning from spices? And are there particular spices I should avoid? Well, so I, I kind of answered a little bit on this early on about this idea of if I'm going to include, if I need to include spices um, in addition, I really want to reduce my risk. Um, that I'm going to add some some not dry heat to it. I'm going to add some some wet wet heat. Um, and on the certain spices to to avoid, I would kind of point them to the to that list that um, that's in the paper that that sort of shows these ones. Um, you know, the coriander, basil um, were were elevated. You know, uh, um, samples that came back positive were elevated above what what we would expect or what matches up with other um, average um, of other foods. And um, and then, I mean, I, I would go with this idea of. Um, to if, if I was in this high risk group and I really really had to avoid pathogens, you know, like I mentioned earlier, if I was going through chemotherapy, I, I probably would avoid this, uh, this risk. Um, uh, because I, but, but as a sort of everyday Joe, just someone as Doug likes to say, who's just trying to cook something in their kitchen, um, I'm probably going to, um, uh, you know, go, go back through the, the steps that, that you talked about in your answer of, um, finding companies that can answer questions about food safety to, so I know that they're doing the best thing they can to protect, protect me, but, but we're, we're, you know, never going to get to, to zero risk. Right. And I'm thinking during the whole time I'm writing this, I'm thinking, well, shoot, I buy McCormick because <laughs> I know they're a huge company and they, they do stuff to manage food safety. Of course, you know, there there I am, you know, as a food scientist shilling for corporate America. But but I mean, I really do think somebody like a McCormick probably has a better handle of the, on this than other companies. What my answer was, um, and I think you'll you'll like this, Ben, I said, remember, when it comes to killing dangerous bacteria, Cooking is your friend. Good, good stuff. <laughs> so, so, and then I go on to kind of make the point, the, the more scientific point. Um, if you add contaminated spices to a food during the cooking process, proper cooking of those foods to 160 degrees Fahrenheit should kill most harmful bacteria. And I went back and I modified that sentence because um, it, it's not going to inactivate spore formers. And after I realized that, I went back and, like I said, and I said, changed it from all or, or something to most. Um, 
And then I make the point, uh, properly refrigerating leftovers and reheating thoroughly will help you manage risk from small levels of spore-forming bacteria that survive the cooking process. Because I, I wanted to... I wanted to get that idea about spores in there for people, and we know that spices generally do have spores and certainly wouldn't surprise me if there were bacillus and clostridia you know on those on those spices just because of the fact that they're they're dried and you know they are the way that they're they're produced so so I wanted to get the message out about cooking but then also you know that you need to handle leftovers so it's really it's really not a message about spices it's a message about proper cooking and then the whole issue of spices I should avoid I just I just you know kind of didn't didn't touch that in response to that question. Although later on, you know, as you said, you, you direct people to the New York, the New York Times article. Actually, has a much more readable summary. You can certainly, if you have a subscription to the journal Food Food Microbiology, you can download uh, download the article. I think the average person probably is going to hit the website and have to pay thirty five bucks for the article. But but yeah, if you really want to look at the data, you know, go go get a copy of the article. But I, I suspect most people don't want to know that badly. That's true. But they might. But for the people that do? And that for the people that do, thank goodness that somebody links back to the primary literature. Have I mentioned that bugs me, Ben, when I see articles that don't link back to the primary literature? It, it does. It, yes. And, <laughs> and I don't like it when it says things like, in this month's um, uh, issue of pediatrics, and where there's no mention of who the authors are or what the title is, then you have to go back and say, well, what month is this and what does this mean and try to find it. I, I agree. It does bother mm -hmm. me when they don't include that citation. It's not just from um, – I mean I don't, I don't care if, if it was one of my papers and someone didn't mention my name. I don't care about that. It's just like as you said, trying to be able to find what someone is making their decisions on or their message on in the uh, as a journalist. It's nice right. to go back. Or, or like when somebody says that 70 percent of all food poisoning – is caused by the home yes, <laughs> or, or in, something in idiotic like that. Oh, yes. Uh, we'll save that one. Let's save that one for the next. <laughs> save that one. Yeah. Um, hey, this is, uh, this is great. I, so, so what, what's your, are you, do you have, what, what's your time here? Do you have I'm, time for, for five more minutes? Oh, I have, I have plenty of time. The only thing that I have to do is I have to eat lunch and then I have a student who is defending their thesis at one. So I have, I have, I have loads of time. So I, there was one other thing I wanted to talk about and this is one of the, um, uh, something that that happened on the internet to me, or that I participated in the on the internet, and it is an outbreak that um, uh, that occurred uh, over the last couple of weeks. The uh, Canadian National Exhibition for those who uh, grew up in the Toronto area, it's affectionately known as the CNE. Um, and uh, the 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 outbreak story goes like this. Uh, um, uh, about a week and a half ago, a few people um, reported getting sick after eating a cronut burger, which is awesome, by the way. I've never had one, but it sounds awesome. Um, it is a hamburger, a cheeseburger, actually, um, that has a maple bacon jam on top of it. And the bun of the cheeseburger is made out of a cronut, which is a uh, croissant that has been shaped into a donut and deep fried and sugared. Um, so it's, it's I'm sure, um, I'm sure a health food in, in some certain circles. 
Um, not, not in, for the most part, but anyway, a whole bunch of people got sick. And, and so the first day there was about 20 people that got sick and, uh, Toronto public health went in and, and shut down the, the vendor and conducted an investigation. And as it, um, as reports of illnesses grew, it ended up getting over a hundred people and Toronto public health, um, uh, went and found, um, uh, Staph aureus toxin, uh, both on uh, in, in a jam in the maple bacon uh, jam that I, that I mentioned before that's being added to the um, uh, to the donut or to the cronut burger, and we're able to pull the toxin out. And so um, that I mean it's a it's a pretty um, you know, fairly exciting outbreak, I guess, from a communication and management standpoint, you know, you've got this vendor that purchased this, this jam from somebody and, um, then they're using it. And, and the, the question and where, where things, um, kind of got fun for me was a, a guy who is known as, uh, the germ guy, I think is his moniker on the internet. His name is not to be confused with Chuck Gerber, Dr. Germ. Right, right. I think he's known as the germ guy. His name is Jason Tetro. Um, and he's a, a Canadian uh, dude who, based on his CV, um, <laughs> uh, is has a bachelor's degree in, I think, food science and has worked at the University of Ottawa for a while. Um and he's writing a book or has written a book about food safety. And, and actually, he was at IAFP. Um, I saw him uh, at the uh, at the trade show. Anyway, he uh, Jason Tetra wrote a wrote an article um, for Food Safety News that that basically um, said uh, I'm going to make. He basically made a bunch of assumptions, uh, being that the fair um, the the vendor Epic Burgers and Waffles who who sold the Cronut Burger. Um, was the control point. And his, his argument was there's been tons and tons of outbreaks associated with temporary events and, um, and, and fairs. And um, the, the quote that, that he had, uh, as, I, as I pull this up, uh, was something about, it was really simple. Um, it could have been controlled. This outbreak could have been controlled um, by Epic Burgers and Waffles if they had just sort of followed some um, simple steps. And let me let me get that um, for you right now, so I can quote it correctly. And this this is an article. Um, uh, entitled "Food Safety in a Time of Festivals, Fairs, and Cronut Burgers," and he uh, it's actually changed since the original, um, but he uh, basically said. Um, if education of the science had been implemented, the staff at Epic Burgers and Waffles would have known that a jar of jam containing meat and sugar could potentially contain bacteria and bacterial toxins. To mitigate this risk, simply bringing the jam up to 48 degrees Celsius would have inactivated the toxin, um, was what it said initially, inactivated the toxin and left the jam in its proper state. He's actually updated this article to say that bringing the jam up to 48 degrees Celsius would have inactivated the toxin production and left the jam in its proper state. And so I called him out um, a whole bunch uh, uh, on this on Twitter and said, um, and actually you and I and Doug had this offline conversation about heat stable um the heat stable heat stable enterotoxin associated with staph aureus and i, I kind of said look you're you're making a bunch of assumptions here um if the toxin was already there in this jam when it got to the vendor bringing that jam up to 40 degrees celsius wouldn't have done anything 
Um, and his, his response was, it was a time-sensitive piece, and sometimes you have to make assumptions, which I thought was total garbage. So, Well, so, he does have a bachelor's degree then. Don, from... it's, it's amazing. <laughs> Don, he has a PhD, an honorary PhD. You know that, right? <laughs> have you seen his CV? Um, no. I, I just got it just got all personal. He's an honor, honorary PhD in um, social media from the online university of social media. So, <laughs> okay. Well, um, I so, rest uh, my case. Right. Um, but, but anyway, this, the, so t- I, I guess the, what, what I want to end on today was, uh, he made a bunch of assumptions and I wanted to, to figure out whether those assumptions were correct by just doing normal social media stuff. So I, um, the the company um Ledolt Le or uh yeah Ledolce I think it is um that uh, supplied this jams a small uh cake and pastry company uh in Toronto and um they uh have a Facebook page which I posted something on asking because I wanted to know <laughs> okay could it have been growth at the um at, at the CNE or it, growth and toxin formation there, or is this growth and toxin formation in this jam something that happened before? And and I've, so I asked them, what's the um, water activity and pH of your product? Which is a really, in my mind, extremely reasonable question for someone who's making food. And the more that I've um, been involved, um, as, as you have with this um, uh, Preventive Controls Alliance and, and going through some of the um, the work that, that Katie Swanson and, and PC Vasavid are, are doing on um, along with the many stakeholders that are, that are part of that group, this idea of, of a company knowing what the hazards are and knowing how they manage those hazards, that, that makes them a good company. Like, they should know what that oh, well, we're, we're producing something that needs to be refrigerated because the pH is, is within this parameter and, and the uh, water activity is, is high. And in fact, the, the, the company had a bit of a fail for me because they basically answered, we don't have a scientist on staff. We don't know that. You should ask Toronto Public Health. Yeah, exactly. So I, we ha- I have a link to the Facebook page um, where uh, they said that, yeah, exactly. That type of information request should be directed to Toronto Public Health. We can send you a link to their site. Um, and, and then, of course, when I found that um, Facebook page, I just felt compelled just now to weigh in, weigh, to weigh in. and I, I asked them um, that why, why should we ask Toronto Public Health about the food safety parameters of a food that you, La Dolce Cupcakes and Cakes, made? So we'll see. Yeah, well, and and I guess the um, so that was the first part of the the story was you know this conversation that that Jason Tetra and I had in, on on Twitter. Then I went and posted this on um, the Facebook page. Then I followed up with uh, Toronto Public Health through a public health uh, um, inspector that I know, and I got the answer. And the answer that, that Toronto Public Health uh, has is that the pH was five point eight, and the water activity is point nine seven. So absolutely is a product that to me isn't even really a jam um you know it's not something that's that's going to gel i don't think it might be uh, a spread like product but it's not something where where you've got this low water activity because there's a whole bunch of sugar in it um and and that that's that that's the i guess the crux of it to to go back to to jason's uh, Jason Tetra's article, yeah, it could have been that, that it was contaminated uh, by Epic Burger. It could be that it was contaminated uh, at the source, um, at La Dolce. Um, but, but he didn't know the answer to that 
um, to that pH uh, water activity um, question before he, he, he wrote his wrote his article. And it was one of these things where it was like, um, you got to get the science right. And you got to be able to, if you're going to tell the story of how this happened and how someone could avoid it, you better get all the, all the information because you can't tell the story without it. Like there's nothing to learn from, um, w- without, w- without being able to pull this information out. So, so thanks well, to, to, to Rick. Yeah. And, he, and here's the thing is I, I appreciate that, you know, whatever his answer was that you have to like, you know, you have to write the story quickly, but you should also be smart enough to know where the holes in the story are and and write in such a way that you don't say stuff that's wrong or if there's something that you don't know or there are facts that are missing you need to just point to those facts and say well we don't we can't make an, an answer here because these facts are missing yeah yeah what just like when we write a, a paper and we talk about the limitations of our study um here here are the things here are the assumptions that i'm making here and and if i'm speculating on it then i might be wrong but uh but to I, I guess it w- the thing that I took the biggest issue was it, it may be an epic burger and waffle issue, but to say it's as simple as all they needed to do was heat that um, that product and, and everything would have been fine. It, it, sim- it simplifies this um, this outbreak immensely. That's not it's not that simple. Right, um, right. As, as Einstein said, everything should be as simple as possible, but no simpler. In other right. words, it's great to simplify things, but uh, but you but that but that's just wrong. Yeah. <laughs> It is. He also, in an earlier version, referred to the pathogen as Salmonella aureus. Um, well, you know, they both begin with S. They do. It's com- it's confusing, Don. It's very confusing. They're complicated names they with are. lots of letters. They are. <laughs> uh, anyway, that got me fired up last week, and I really uh, um, yeah, I wanted to to sort of tell that story because this is, you know, coming back to um, to stuff that I'm going to be doing in, in talks as we go forward here on, around social media. This is one of those stories that, that if I'm a small producer of food or if I'm a large company, I, I need to know this whole, um, this whole package that outbreaks are going to happen. Someone's going to write about it. They're going to probably get it. Some, someone may get it wrong. If I'm not there and I don't have the science to back what it is, then they're going to tell my story for me. And if I'm going to make, if I'm going to be part of it, I, I need to go to where someone's talking about it. Um, and, and, and that all takes someone with technical knowledge and someone who is internet savvy enough to jump into the conversation. And I, I feel like those things are sometimes mutually exclusive and there aren't as many people that are jumping into this, these conversations as need to be. And they're relying on, um, very traditional marketing or food safety stuff, which, which just ends up backfiring. So, yeah. And, and, you know, this was, this was great that you did this. And of course, anytime this happens on the internet, I can't help but think about the XKCD cartoon, um, uh, which is just basically, and we'll link to this in the show notes. It's a single part, single panel cartoon and and the voice um, off, off frame says, are you coming to bed? A person typing up the computer says, I can't, this is important. And uh, the other person says, what? And then the person typing on the computer says, someone is wrong on the internet. So I, I appreciate you, you being the person last week that was correcting people that were wrong on the internet. And, and so thanks for that. Um, while we're talking about um, uh, the internet and, and people uh, perhaps being wrong, I do want to talk about um, 
a podcast that I listened to recently. This ties into the whole jams and jellies thing, and then and then and then I'm I'm ready to be I'm ready to be done if you are. But I, I can't resist uh, um, uh, mentioning this. So one of the uh, the the, the podcast uh, that I've been listening to lately that I really really like. I don't get to listen to every episode, but but I listen to it a lot. Is the podcast called The New Disruptors, which features uh, Glenn Fleischman, who is now the editor in chief of the magazine, which is the internet uh, magazine started by Marco Arment and, and now and now run by Glenn. And uh, episode thirty eight was entitled "Yes, We Can," and the guest that uh, Glenn interviewed was Marisa McClellan, and uh, she uh, she is a blogger. She has a blog entitled Food in Jars, which is just an awesome name for a blog. It's simple and it's direct and to the point. And her blog is on the topic of canning and preserving. And she's a food writer. Um, that's her, her main job is as a food writer. But she started this blog and it really took off because of this whole resurgence of interest in, in canning. And apparently there's a some sort of a festival that happens around canning. And um, she's just kind of been at the epicenter of all of this. And I was, I was prepared to be um, – I, I went in – with a critical eye, much like probably you went into reading Jason's article, um, hoping to kind of catch them uh, in a food safety mistake, uh, which is not the way I usually listen to podcasts. But when when people that aren't that you know, frankly, Ben, that don't have the proper credentials <laughs> talk about food safety, I'm ready to be critical. But I was really impressed with this woman. Um, obviously, she doesn't have an advanced degree in in in. And I, I'm sound like an ass, I know, but she doesn't have an advanced degree in, in food science or food safety, but she clearly was committed to food safety. She was committed to providing people with accurate information. Um, she mentioned uh, the National Center for Home Food Preservation, um, which is at the University of Georgia and run by our friend Elizabeth Andress. She mentioned Clostridium botulinum. Um, so she – and she really – you know, really was, and, and they mentioned the the extension service, and, and 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 you know how we don't have enough money to do what we do, and the national center, um, you know, lost lost their funding. They don't have enough funding to do what they need to do, and so it really ended up being a very positive. Um, positive experience listening to the podcast, and and I'm I'm very interested now in what she's writing on her blog, and I want to I reached out to both of them via Twitter. I didn't I haven't uh, seen a response yet, and that that may not ever come. See see our earlier comments about the randomness of Twitter and and whether interactions take take uh, take off or not. Um, the only quibble I would have with the podcast was that uh, Glenn Fleischman um, has read Michael Pollan's book. A couple of Michael Pollan's books and had nothing but positive things to say about Michael Pollan. And all I can say is that I think Michael Pollan's an ass. But um, anyway, that's uh, that's just my opinion. Well, I hope Michael listens to the podcast. <laughs> I'm sure he does. He's always listening to this podcast, I'm sure. Um, we talked about him in, in the past. Yeah, I, I, I had a chance to listen to the um, to this podcast as well, and I thought it was um, really well done. And I wanted to to highlight the um, um, the organization, or I guess the ad hoc organization that you mentioned, as uh, Canning Across America, is, is this group um, that that I've come across a couple of times that that really do. Um, start with the evidence-based material that um, that Elizabeth and, and Judy Harrison at UGA have really um, developed and, and is. Uh, you know, pushed out through cooperative extension across the U.S. Um, as as the basis for, for a lot of stuff, and even she even talked um, a little bit about um, being a master food preserver, which is something that um, that we don't have in North Carolina that I've been sort of charged with and pushed off a few times um, to to create something around this um, sort of 
advanced canning uh, process, but it was yeah, it was a. I, I thought it was a good. I enjoyed the uh, the podcast. So thanks for pos- passing that on. Yeah, and and again in in the the show notes for that article, they they link to the cooperative extension ser- service or cooperative system, excuse me, um, uh, and and they link to the UGA um, website, including information on how to become a master food preserver. So yeah, just uh, good uh, good stuff. Cool. Well, hey, I think that's a show. I think so. I think uh, I think we call it. We uh, I think uh, as they say in the canning worlds, I think we uh, we go ahead and put this one up. <laughs> Yes, that's what they say in the canning world. I think I think we go ahead and uh, uh, and uh, and shuck that corn and uh, let's put let's put this up so we can uh, so can be, people can enjoy it uh, later on in the year. Right. Let's incubate that sample. <laughs> yeah. Good stuff. Well, Don, as always, um, fun to chat. Um, glad we're uh, we're back at this and we'll do it again in a couple of weeks. Sounds good, Ben. Take care. Bye bye. Bye. So do you do you follow um, uh, Canvolution no. on Twitter? No, I follow um, uh, someone who retweets that. I think it's it's uh, someone in South Carolina, but I'm now following Canvolution, like as as we speak. Hmm. Yeah, I just I just clicked the link to follow. So yeah, no, I someone. I can't remember who it is. There's someone in South Carolina, Cooperative Extension, that does a lot of canning stuff that, that retweets pretty much everything from Canvolution. Yeah, there's a there's a great feature on um, the TweetBot app that lets you um, uh, follow somebody but then disable their retweets. Ooh, that's which, cool. Which, which can be helpful if, yeah. if that becomes a problem. That is a good idea. Um. I'm going to tell you. I don't know. Oh, hey. So, yeah, show notes are up for – or draft show notes are up. Or yep. You're good for – Yeah, I need to I need to do the audio. I probably will have time today. So if I keep my office uh, door closed, uh, maybe uh, maybe I can get that done. Cool. That's one of the um, – this is one of the first times that I've been able to jump out ahead of you. <laughs> so I just wanted to mention that. And, well, thanks for getting that done. And I uh, – yeah, I don't um, – Let's since we're in the after dark, we can talk about show titles for the last episode. Um, let's uh, let me get back to you on that. Um, let's see. Um, people love it when we say um. Um. Yeah. Mm. Well, I, f- fingering the retailers would be a good <laughs> barf blog post. It would be. It's. <laughs> um. <laughs> um uh, I, I like my my top two are, but that's not science. Or can we talk tempeh? Yeah, I'm, I, I think since we only 
we didn't talk a whole lot about Tempe. Tempe, like, right. Yeah, I think we go with, but that's not science. Good. I like that. Yeah. And you know what? That I went back and listened to the to the show this morning. It came out of your um, someone setting the uh, um, uh, serve safe uh, manual in in a barf blog post, and I was like, oh, that is a great. You you were like, but but that's not science. I need some science. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> uh, cool. Okay, so I've got audio for this one, and you've got show notes for forty eight. Just so you're so we're all clear. Am I on mute? Oh, I'm on mute. <laughs> someone's, on, <laughs> someone's on mute. Yes, sorry. Oh, it's so hard podcasting, Ben. It There's is. so many things to keep track of. Um, yeah, so 50, we're going to have to have this bash. And we probably need more T-shirts that say, like, we made it nifty, nifty. We made it to 50. <laughs> or, yeah, because that's what you do. That's what you do. That's what I'm going to do when I turn 50. And then I'm going to put a whole bunch of uh, pink flamingos on my lawn. Is that a, Do you know what about that? Or is that a Canadian thing? Pink flamingos at 50? Or just in general? like When you get old? Yeah. Like I think pink, you put pink flamingos on your lawn when you get old and move to Florida. No, no, no. Like 50 of them that show up or 40 of them that show up like for your birthday. That No, that's a Canadian thing or that's a Ben thing. That's that not is a, not a Ben thing. I've never had it. I've only seen it. It must be Canadian though. I've never seen it around here. I mean, I understand like pink flamingos, but that's kind of like if you just, you know, you're pining for Florida or something. Yeah. Um, birthday. I'm going to Google this. Look at that. It's, uh, what does what Wikipedia say? It's a uh, pink flamingos is an American transgressive black, como- black comedy exploitation film. Of course it is. Yeah. No, that's not, it. not on Wikipedia. Uh, list the number twenty nine of the fifty films you see should see before you die. <laughs> well, there you go. You better get started. So, yeah, this is crazy. Maybe it is just a Canadian thing. That's the most bizarre Canadian thing I've come across. Because I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think you have flamingos in Canada, no, right? No, no. But there's uh, we don't we don't. But here's like a uh, catch my party. I'm going to send you some links. Like, like basically the, the idea is you're going to wake up in the morning and your friends have put out all these flamingos on your lawn. That's a nice tradition. I like that. Yeah. I guess maybe it's because we're yearning for Florida <laughs> as we get older. I don't know. I think this is amazing that I've just we've just stumbled on something that that may or may not be Canadian, but you just don't know about. It could be something that happens. Yeah, it, it could. <laughs> it could be. It just you just didn't know about it. <laughs> but but there's probably lots of stuff that happens <laughs> I don't know about. But it also could just be Canadian. I'm, I'm not, not just counting any of these things. Ah, oh, man. So I've just spent. I'm just googling pink flamingo parties now. It's nice. As you do. Yep. Um. Cool. Okay. So we're good for that. We got our date. We know who's doing what. Um, what else is going on? Oh, hey. So I'm, uh, so I've paid up for CFP. That's follow up that oh, I should good. talk That's about. That's good. Yeah. So I'm all like, uh, good to go on that weekend in April or week, whatever the time is in April. Good. You'll have fun. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. And, uh, so that'll be, that'll be cool. Um, 
what else? I don't have anything else for you. So, uh, anyway, that's all. Oh, so speaking of speaking of follow up, I told I told Doug that I want to try to. I so I I have a I have a new. Uh, you know this, but listeners may not. Um, well, they'll probably know this by the time this comes out. I'll have a a new post on Barf Blog, and I told Doug I want to try to blog more, and but I just need to be kind of reminded and and nudged a little bit. And there's a actually I I downloaded uh, in my Starbucks app there is a, a free download of a Weber Grill app, and so I bought it because it where I got it from you know because it was free from Starbucks, and it's got some good things in it, but of course they're really lacking on any temperature information. So I'm gonna I think my next blog, Barf Blog post is going to be a re- app review for the Weber Weber app Grill app. Sweet. And I can talk about iGrill and and all the cool stuff you can do with that. That's cool. Yeah, it's I'm I, I want to the, I want to write more about like that kind of stuff, the, um, like like this this dishwasher thing. Mm-hmm. That that I'm I'm more interested in that than commenting on the stuff that's going on in the news, like in a in a blog post. I've been doing that on tweets and and pod in the podcast but the um you know i want i want to like i i'm finding that my drive for the for the blog is oh, what are the things that i'm doing so it's like what you're doing is exactly it i like that mm, yeah i'm rambling mm-hmm. um <laughs> yeah you know i i'm i'm very my my philosophy about blogging is very much informed by what gruber does at daring fireball like like a lot of what he posts will just be a link to a story with like a one line comment or a two line comment about how it's moronic or how about he agrees with it and then and then periodically there will be these longer posts where he really digs into something and and again there'll be links but it's it's more like what he's thinking about like in, in depth on a particular topic yeah So anyway, so I, I anyway I should blog more. Um, yeah. Oh, hey. So I just <laughs> so I just texted. I thought you the picture of the <laughs> pink flamingos, but I actually sent it to my friend Chris Gunter, and he responded, "Is it your birthday?" <laughs> so that didn't work out. Here you can see the flamingos now. Uh, wrong person. Um, this is I'm sure fascinating. Uh, <laughs> So we should probably go. Are you on mute again? I am. <laughs> it's a good thing I almost just cursed there. Um, I I am, and we should go, and um, we will. I will talk to you um, later on this month. Yeah, I'll talk to you soon. Okay. All right. Take care, Ben. Bye bye. Bye.